1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Bible, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today as we continue our study in the book of 2 Samuel, David deals justice for Ishbosheth's murder, and the tribes of Israel come to unite under David's banner, ending the civil war. We'll pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 9. Once again... That's 2 Samuel Chapter 4, verse 9.
2: Verse 9. And David answered Recob and Baana his brother, the sons of Rimon the Bereathite, and said unto them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of all adversity, when one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good tidings, I took hold of him and slew him in Ziklag, who thought I would have given him a reward for his tidings. How much more when wicked men have slain a righteous person in his own house upon his bed. Shall I not therefore now require his blood of your hand and take away you from the earth? And so David commanded his young men and they slew them and they cut off their hands and their feet and hang them up over the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the sepulcher of Abner in Hebron. I love David's response. He says, as the Lord lives... Let me tell you a very important truth, boys. As true as God is alive, who has redeemed my soul out of adversity. And by the way, he's the one who's always rescued me when things were bad. I didn't need people to go cutting off heads to rescue me. God's always been the one who's rescued me. If I executed a man who claimed to kill Saul, who was just looking for a reward, how much more when someone's committed a murder? How much more when, a wicked, when wicked men have slain a righteous person in his own house upon his bed? The word righteous there means innocent. I don't think David is saying that Ishbosheth was a godly man or never did anything wrong, but Ishbosheth had never hunted David down like Saul his father did. This was Abner's war, not Ishbosheth's. And Ishbosheth hadn't done anything worthy of execution, let alone being murdered. And so David, who is a godly king, must execute these men for their crimes. And so he says, shall I not therefore require his blood of your hand and take you away from the earth? So David, he he doesn't just kill them. He cuts their hands and feet off and then it says hangs, but the word there for hangs is polite. They hung all right, but it's because a spear was shoved up through their spine all the way through their their head. And so uh, that'll give you a beautiful mental image. So, David impales their mutilated bodies on a spike to make it clear what he thinks about what people who do this type of thing, how he feels about it. And he's not cool with it. David makes it very clear that he does not approve of what they've done. He doesn't want anyone to think these guys were hired or that he was okay with what they did. And in contrast to how he dishonors them, it says, But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. Again, David honors the slain, trying to make it clear to everyone that he never wanted this war, and he was not in favor of reuniting the kingdom through evil means. There's an idea called pragmatism out there, and it's the idea that the ends justify the means. That is not a biblical idea. The means need to be God's way. The ends never justify doing things opposite of God's way, period. Period. What I love about these chapters here with David when he deals with Joab and he deals with these guys, deals with the Amalekite who, killed Saul, who claimed to kill Saul, David had so many opportunities to become the tyrant that Saul had been, right? But he resists every single time. It's like every single time he says, no, I'm not like Saul and I won't be like Saul. I'm going to try to do this the right way. And this is one of the reasons why David will be beloved by so many, even though deep divides do exist in the nation. It's why David is remembered as Israel's greatest king, even though he wasn't even close to perfect. You see, David didn't make this about himself. He made it about what was best for God's people. Now, because David handles this the right way on multiple occasions, This gives the other tribal leaders courage to believe that peace might be possible. And so chapter five, verse one, then came all the tribes of Israel to David unto Hebron and they spoke saying, behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were he that led out and brought in Israel and the Lord said to you, you shall feed my people Israel and you shall be captain over Israel. And so all the elders of Israel came to the king to Hebron and King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. So David was 30 years old when he began to reign and he reigned for 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. So What's interesting is how the tribal leaders make their case for peaceful reunification here. They say to David when they come to him, behold, which means please listen to what we have to say. And then they give three reasons for why they want to reunite under his leadership. Number one, they said, listen, we are your bone and your flesh. We are all Israelis here. We are all God's people. This conflict is wrong. Good reason. That was a point that should have been seen as soon as Saul died, but I suppose it's better to eventually realize it than never. The second reason they give is, well, in time past, when Saul was king, you were he that led us out and brought Israel in. You were one of the highest ranking generals in our army. We've followed you before. And and you know what? The real enemy here are the Philistines, and you're the best person to lead us to defeat them. Another good reason. The third reason they say is, And the Lord said to you, you shall feed my people Israel. You shall be a captain over Israel. And this was the most important reason. God had picked David to shepherd them, to care for them. And so what they're saying in this is we're prepared to submit to God's plan now. We're done doing things our own way. And so in this, all three of their reasons, they they contain a confession. We blew it big time. But we want to make things right if you're willing. And David is willing. You know, in Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4, Jesus says something very interesting. He starts the chapter off by saying, offenses are going to happen. You're going to wrong people. People are going to wrong you. It's impossible that it won't happen. And then he says, if you're the one doing the wrong and you do it to one of my little ones, better that you go put a millstone around your neck and throw yourself into the seat don't do that. That's the idea of what he's trying to convey. But what if it's done to you? How do, how do you respond? Luke 17, three and four. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother trespass against you, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day, turn again to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Now, the argument I frequently hear people make is, but they've already asked me a couple times and they've already admitted they did something wrong and they did it again. I'm, I, they're not sincere. There's no way they're sincere. First off, you and I can never know someone's heart. But secondly, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because that's what Jesus said, not me. I didn't write that. I didn't go, hey, I'm going to say something really crazy and nobody's going to like it, but it's going to be how it is. Jesus said this. So, If your brother sins against you, he says, rebuke him. Tell him, that was wrong, man. But if he repents, forgive him. Forgive him. And I love that Jesus says before he commands us to do this, take heed to yourself. Bitterness and unforgiveness are something I must guard against. No matter how horrible the thing's done to me, those two sins will destroy me if I don't take heed to myself. They'll destroy me. doesn't matter how much someone else is trying to destroy me. That will destroy me if I do not guard against it. Bitterness and unforgiveness. David had lots of reasons to be bitter. After running from Saul for all those years, and then finally the, you know, the tribe of Judah crowns him king, and he's thinking, all right, here we're going to go. We're going to go fight the Philistines, and then Abner and Ishbosheth, and, and all these other tribes go, uh-huh, we're, we're going with the house of Saul, and we're going to fight you. It had been very easy to David to go, you know what? Done. Done with all of you. All of you forever. A pox on your house forever. Right? And yet we see David try and try again to end this thing peacefully. And so when the opportunity comes, it says that King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord. They hammered out the details of a peaceful reunification. Um, and and it, it worked. David, he does it, they do it before the Lord. In other words, David wanted this done God's way and he wanted everyone on board with God's way. We're going to do it right this time. And it works. And so they anointed David king over Israel, the whole nation. And so even though it says they anointed David king over Israel, what's really going on here is that they're saying, we want the Lord to be in charge again. We want the Lord to be in charge again, and you know, as much wrong as was done to David, David's okay with that, because being king was never about him; it was about the Lord's glory, and about the Lord's leading, and about the Lord's blessing on His people. And if you're a leader in some way, if you're 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 a parent, you're a husband, you know, you have a ministry, you're, you have employees, if you're in a leadership position. That needs to be your mindset too. It's not about me. It's about God's glory. It's about God's leading. And it's about God's blessing upon the people I serve. Verses four and five just give us a summary of David's reign over Israel. I think it's interesting that it says David was 30 years old when he began to reign. How old does it mean Samuel anointed him? He was just a teenager at the time. That means that God David didn't see God's promise fulfilled fully because it says it was seven years later until he reigned over all of Israel. 37 years old. It's at least 20 years, probably 25 years that David didn't see God's promise fulfilled. That's how long it took. How long have you been praying for that thing that God promised you? (laughs) Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't stray off the path. Keep your eyes on him and keep trusting him. Don't have any zigzags in your history. Now, verse 5 mentions here that David moved his capital from Hebron to Jerusalem at some point. And so, of course, the question is well, how did that happen? Because we know that Jerusalem is under the control of the Jebusites. Well, verse 6 is going to catapult us into the future a little bit and tell us that story. In verse 6, in fact, verses 6 through 16, they transport us about four or five years into the future after David defeats the Philistines, which happens at the end of this chapter. So we're we're not going in chronological order here. The author is compiling events by subject rather than chronology. We'll go back to the correct chronology in verse 17. But in verse 6, it says, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem unto the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, which spoke unto David, saying, Except you take away the blind and the lame, you shall not come in hither, thinking, David can't come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, the same as the city of David. And David said on that day, Whosoever gets up the gutter and smites the Jebusites and the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Wherefore, they said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. So David dwelt in the fort and called it the city of David, and David built round about from Milo and inward. And David went on and grew great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. So we start here with David taking Jerusalem from these overconfident Jebusites. Now, Jerusalem is a city we have met before this. It's been mentioned a few times. Melchizedek, uh, the king priest who visited Abraham after he rescued Lot, remember? And Abraham paid him tithes, and then he came with Uh, Bread and wine, remember? He was from this city. Joshua mentions Jerusalem as one of the cities that Israel failed to conquer. But from this chapter on, Jerusalem will become the most important city in the Bible. It will become the most important city in the Bible, which is why the author breaks chronology. Now, I have to warn you, if you are inclined to be politically correct, you might want to close your ears for the next few verses, all right? Because this is not politically correct at all. It says that when David came up to fight against the Jebusites, that they said unto him, they cried down from their walls, unless you take away the blind and the lame, you're not coming in here thinking, and they're thinking to each other, no way David can take this place. The phrase here is, we don't even need our best soldiers to defeat you. Your army is so pathetic we could defend this city with our disabled people. Yet it says, nevertheless, despite their confidence, David took the stronghold of Zion and he called it the city of David. Sometimes the Temple Mount is called Zion. Sometimes all the hills around Jerusalem are called Zion. But the southeastern hill that is known as the city of David is the original Mount Zion. And so how did David pull off taking a fortress that Israel hadn't been able to take for centuries? Well, verse 8, and David said on that day, whosoever gets up to the gutter and smites the jebusites and the lame and the blind that are hated of david's soul he shall be chief and captain david again not exactly politically correct here We'll start off here. It mentions whosoever gets up to the gutter. There was a water shaft that was heavily guarded. If if we ever go to Jerusalem again, um, we we'll go through that shaft and we walk through it, actually. And you see where the people of Israel, the army, had to fight to take the city. We will go to the ancient city of Jebus, is what they called it. David named it Jerusalem. But we will go to there and see the city that the David fought against. Uh, it's underground. They've dug it out and excavated it and you go underground to go see it. It's pretty cool. So he says, listen, this is our only way in. We can't, you know, can't scale the walls or anything like that. It's our only way in. So whoever gets up that gutter and takes the city, he'll be my new general. He'll be the chief and the captain. <laughs> Wherefore, and you know, David basically, what he says is, you know, and, and he makes this little comment in here, whoever remember, smites the Jebusites and the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul. David basically says, Hey, they said, hey, you couldn't be, you know, we don't even need our best soldiers. We can have our disabled people defend the city and you couldn't take it. And David says, yeah, you're all disabled. That, that's what he's saying. He says, they're all disabled. And he says, you guys, and then he goes, and you guys know how much I hate disabled people. And then all the Israelites are like, ha, ha, ha let's go get them. So he's not politically correct. These are soldiers talking here and there's definitely some soldier speak. And so They go up and they take the city, wherefore they said, after they take the city, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house, David's palace in Jerusalem. We'll find out more about that in verse 11. But apparently David never let the Jebusites forget this taunt that they made. Anytime a Jebusite wanted to come into his palace, he said, no, I hate disabled people. Get out. So he reminded them of how they had teased him. Uh, If you have a King James version here, and again, I'm not saying it's right to do this. It's just how they talked. If you have a King James Version, you'll notice that there are some words in italics here, the part where David says he shall be chief and captain. And that's because it's not here in the original text. However, we know this is what David said because 1 Chronicles 11.6 tells us that that's what he said. So in 1 Chronicles 11.6, it says a little bit more. It says, and David said, whoever smites the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain.'" And so Joab, the son of Zeriah, went up first, and he was chief. Now, if Joab became the new chief, that means at some point in the four or five years before this happened, David fired him because Joab was David's general before he killed Abner. And so when David makes this claim, Joab says, get out of my way, I'm getting up there. And Joab is the one who led the charge through the water shaft and took the city. And so, can you imagine what it was like for David, you know? He looks down, he looks up to the city, and all of a sudden he sees Joes up there waving a flag. Hey, uncle, I'm back. David can't get rid of him, even though he tries. Verse 9, so David dwelt in the Fort Jerusalem, and he called it the city of David. And David built round about from Milo and inward. Milo. these were the outer terraces of the city before. Uh, Judges 1 verse 8 tells us that Israel did conquer All of the surrounding Jebusite dwellings that weren't in the fort, they just couldn't take the fortress. So it had become basically a a military installation only. Well, David, you know, these beautiful terraces, he rebuilt them on the outside of the fortress. And I mean, can you imagine the views, you know, from these terraces out and looking down in the valleys all around uh, Jerusalem? And he began to basically turn the hill into a real city again. And thus, It says, David went on and grew great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. So David, we see a time where David's finally at peace. He prospers greatly. His fame grows, you know, because the Lord is with him. In fact, his fame grew so much that the Phoenician king of Tyre sought a treaty with him. Verse 11, and Hiram king of Tyre sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a palace. And David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for his people Israel's sake. Now Hiram, the king of Tyre, becomes important because his alliance to David eventually creates problems for Israel down the road when one of his descendants, a not important woman named Jezebel, marries King Ahab. So we're just getting to know some of these family trees right now and how they come Into the story later on. But he had a friendship with David. He befriends him, and he offers to build him a palace. You know, it's interesting. David knew that God made him a promise, but he never dreamed that God would be this good to him. And so as he's experiencing all this goodness, he begins to ponder, why? Why? Why are you doing this for me, Lord? And it says David perceived, he realized two things. Number one, that it was the Lord who established him king over Israel. In other words, it was God who did this not David and then number two that God had exalted his kingdom not for David's sake but for his people Israel's sake God had blessed David so the entire nation would experience a blessing and you know every leader who is godly understands these two important truths it's not about me it's not me that built whatever it is that God's doing, you know, or the, whatever the, the, the ministry is, or my family, how it's prospering, or my business is prospering. It's not me. It's not me. It's the Lord. The Bible says prosperity does not come from the east or the west, but where does it come from? The Lord. It comes from the Lord. The second thing that every godly leader understands is it's not about me even in the blessings. Yes, God loves me, and he wants to bless me. God loves you, and he wants to bless you. But when God calls a leader and he blesses them, it's because he loves everybody else as well. The leader is not greater than those they lead. They're part of the group that God wants to bless. And this is the role they play in that blessing. Now, here's what's cool about that. Realizing those two truths, that it's God who does it. You know, he's God who prospers it. And it's the Lord doing it because he loves his people. Realizing that takes the pressure off. Basically means I'm not the one building something. You're not the one building something. And it keeps our pride in check because it reminds us that we're servants, not rulers. Right? We're servants. We exist to serve God's people, whether you're you're a mom or a dad, whether you're an employer, or whether you serve in the ministry. And isn't that what Jesus taught us? In John chapter 13, verses 12 through 17, after... Jesus washed their feet. He goes, do you realize what I've done to you? He goes, if I being your master have done this unto you, how much more should you do the same? Take on the form of a servant and do the dirty, stinky jobs. You know, Jesus said, you call me Lord, and rightfully so. And no servant is greater than his master. So if Jesus would stoop down, he humbled himself, you know, and stepped out of perfection into our world, you know, served us when he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, how much more should that be the way that we go about things? And you know what I love about David is, you know he understood this truth because you see it consistently in the Psalms, consistently in the Psalms. We read in Psalm 28 uh, for our scripture reading, we read about how David said, Lord, I'm in a big heap of trouble because there are evil people and they're doing evil things to me and I'm a mess. And he cries to the Lord, Lord, get them and save me. And then when he says, Lord, you did it. You did it. You rescued me and you saved me. But then in the last two verses, David says this. Psalm 28. He says, the Lord is their strength. He is the saving strength of his anointed one. The king. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Feed them also and lift them up forever. David's heart, when he got out of this trouble, was he's like, you know what, Lord? You didn't just do this for me, you did it for them. You're their strength. You're the one who does these things. And so, Lord, save your people. Bless your inheritance. Feed them also and bless them forever, right? That's the heart of of a leader. It's how Jesus was. It's how he taught us to be. And it's one of the things that David got right. Was David in trouble? Yes. But his place was to seek the good of God's people, not himself. And I ask you, is that how you lead your family, your marriage? Is that how you lead your ministry or your work environment? It needs to be if we name the name of Christ.
1: This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours. Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.